0: From the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism,
1: with your host, Michael Dawson.
0: My pleasure today to welcome Nathan D. B. Connolly, Hubert Baxter Adams, Associate Professor of History at John Hopkins University, our New Dawn podcast. Nathan writes about racism, capitalism, politics, and the built environment in the 20th century. His work pays special attention to people's overlapping understandings of property rights and civil rights in the United States and the wider Americas. His first book was A World More Concrete: a Real Estate and the Remaking of Jim Crow, South Florida. University of Chicago Press, 2014, It received numerous awards, including the Kenneth T. Jackson Book Award from the Urban History Association. He's working on two new book lens projects, and instead of me introducing those, we'll get to those later and have him describe them in some detail, (laughs) I'm sure.
1: Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here, Michael.
0: Yes. So one of the things you did for the Race and Capitalism Project was a really great piece on items at the SSRC website where you went into some detail thinking about the relevance of Robert Allen's Black Awakening in Capitalist America for our Mm -hmm. times. And one of the strong arguments you had, and one which I agree with, is that you said that, we've lost some of the analytical edge when thinking about the circumstances of African-Americans, not just in the United States, but more globally. What did you mean by that?
1: Right. So I had encountered Alan's work as an undergraduate, and I had rediscovered a whole host of thinkers who were thinking through political economy and race, in- including, you know, members of the Black Panther Party, people who were writing about, you know, kind of colonial struggles. But I didn't really have a good kind of working understanding of what colonialism in the U.S. kind of meant in a day-to-day way until really about 2010, 2011. And it was at that point that, you know, I appreciated the kind of rhetorical elements that went into calling the Black predicament in the United States a kind of colonized existence, but I hadn't really thought about the analytic value, or even with somebody like, you know, Allen was trying to do in that text, until I basically started reading African history. And I, I was team teaching a class with Sarah Berry, who was trained as an economist. She was a professor emeritus here at Hopkins. She has just recently retired, but we taught a class together called Reading Land and History. And it was in that class that it became very clear to me that you know, the US field, particularly as it concerns American history, but even in, in the broader social sciences, had decided, for whatever reason, that it wasn't really going to take seriously the notion that Black people were suffering under a kind of colonized existence, and that there was a lot about the day-to-day mechanics of capitalism in America that required people to operate as chiefs in a form of indirect rule in terms of the Black elite, that looked at exploitation as an integral piece of economic growth in the 20th century, that had a kind of redistributive politics around land itself that we tended to call redlining or FHA, you know, housing policy, but that was really about trying to control the distribution of resources, the accumulation of equity, and so on. And so there was a lot that helped me to really put a sharper analytic point on it because the literature on Africa, unlike the US stuff, isn't as obsessed with trying to make sense of kind of race relations as a problem, right? You have African nations with oftentimes Black heads of state who are continuing pretty consistently forms of neocolonialism, which is a term that Allen directly uses in Black Awakening. And, and, I, and I thought it was really helpful to think through, in a lot of ways, what was a, a really important intervention of the Black Power era analytically that had kind of gotten lost through the focus on Black power simply as a topic. So we've had a lot of really important work about Stokely Carmichael, about the Black Power movement, um, about so many of the student groups and the activist circles that developed in response to the kind of crumbling of liberalism in the late 1960s. But we, we, for whatever reason, seem to put down some of the interventions that happen intellectually to make the Black Power movement make sense for its critique to really stick. And so I was drawn in studying Jim Crow to thinking about, you know, what is the actual process by which people are harvesting profits from poverty? And that, to me, felt much closer to Alan's critique and a number of other scholars who, at the time, I realized, were really thinking through this colonial language in very sharp and strong analytic terms.
0: As you know, I did a piece for *Items* where I looked at, and I was going through a similar process as you in terms of thinking about black political economy for our times, at the work of, of two, two writers. One, James Boggs, who wrote *Race, mm-hmm. Racism, and the Class Struggle*. On he, he very much like. George Jackson and Alan and many of the other other contemporaries across the sort of black political spectrum at least were talking mm-hmm. using internal colonial models. And I mean Mario Barrera, who also, about 10 years later in the late 70s, wrote a book called Racing Class in the Southwest, where he saw through the same type of colonial logics and how they worked in the Southwest, particularly with respect to labor markets. One of the interesting points that I think you emphasized, that I did not emphasize in my work though. Was the usefulness, the continued usefulness, which you just mentioned, of neocolonialism? I mean, I was first exposed to that concept through the work of Kwame Nkrumah and his work on Mm neocolonialism. But uh, you talk about how neocolonialism is alive and well now in the Trump era. Can you say a little bit more (laughs) about that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I I was really taken, you know, Pastor Darrell Scott's discussion. At a Black History Month breakfast, where he was describing what sounded like, you know, a meeting with the warlords of Chicago, right? And he was talking about how. Was he talking about Rahm Emanuel?
0: <laughs> no, not <laughs> around with Daniel. At all. Oh, I'm just sorry. <laughs> but all, but, all, but all,
1: all, all the brothers on the South Side who were apparently, you know, wielding guns and shooting things up, and he was gonna find a way to broker a deal that traded social programs for an end to gun violence. Right? It was, it was a very kind of profane, transactional process he was trying to effectively initiate. Mm-hmm. And you know, you see. Trump kind of sitting there as the big man saying, you know, well, they need to do something, because if they don't do something, then we will, right? We'll send in the feds and we'll intervene. And, and, it, and it very much echoed, you know, what British authorities were claiming to be willing to do in their various possessions in Africa, French authorities and so forth, where if the chiefs can't get it together, then the colonial officials will be forced to intervene, right? And, you know, there's much about the Trump administration at the, particularly at the level of racial symbolism. That dabbles in this kind of cynical representational politics, right? So you think about obviously someone like Ben Carson being nominated to be the and confirmed as the head of Housing and Urban Development with no qualifications whatsoever in that field. The head of public housing in the state of New York, you know, is is, is somebody who helped to plan the weddings of, you know, Trump's daughter and, and son in law, um a black woman. People who are in charge now of Native American health are, you know, Native Americans but oftentimes very much opposed to doing What's necessary to get people the kinds of healthcare that they need on these reservations? So there's a kind of identity politics, if we can use a somewhat loaded term, that the Trump administration itself uses to try to diffuse the notion that his administration is not concerned with the problems of you know subaltern people, however we may choose to, to define them. And so, you know, my, my sense of indirect rule you know, again, it, it, it comes out of a of a of a reading of, you know, people who have worked on Ghana and, you know, Rhodesia, but also, you know, thinking about the way that Southern politicians in the nineteen forties and fifties needed black leadership in the South to basically, you know, help solidify Southern white authority in these black communities. Important history to be told. And I certainly write about this at length in a world more concrete where you have Southern senators and congresspeople who are working with Black dentists and ministers and to help maintain control over these Black communities. And these same Black leaders are actively opposing bus boycotts and other forms of direct action. Um, They're working out ways to get Black people their own versions of a kind of colored-only state, Black police and judges and the like, again, as part of a kind of transactional relationship between Whites, middle-class Blacks, and poor Blacks. And so, you know, seeing Daryl Scott's you know, utterances you know, as recently as 20, you know, 17. Um, again, a light just kind of went on, and it felt like it could easily have been 1947 or 1917 to me. As you know,
0: and you're being too polite, not you're being too polite to mention it in some of these neo-colonial uh, plantation <laughs> politics in Chicago through the Dawson machine and from the 40s through the through fairly well into the 70s, even after he died in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And one of the key aspects of that, besides the transactional, I mean, the transactional aspects were just clear to, as we used to say, intuitively obvious, the most casual observer, was (laughs) the really extraordinary role that they had in trying to suppress the black power movement, the civil rights movement, first against King when he came in the middle 60s but also against Kwame Tureyev, because he had adopted that name by the time he was in Chicago and trying to run him out of town, trying to disrupt the National Welfare Rights Organization and their national meetings. And it was very much not just indirect rule, but indirect counterinsurgency as, as well mm. with mm-hmm. um, The Dawson machine and their various allies, and it's out of that effort that the Ralph Metcalfs and later Harold Washington come in, and saying, "No, (laughs) we're not. We're not playing with it. We're not playing that anymore." (laughs) (laughs) Because it's pretty much the same. I mean, as as you know, like in colonial situations and national liberation struggles in places like Kenya, often the targets were the the local rulers who were in league with the imperialists you know, metropole politicians and military authorities. This point brings up two thoughts for me. One is a thought that you'll probably agree with. There's a French, uh, excuse my really poor French pronunciation, but a French philosopher named Alain Badou, who's written extensively about the left in, in, well, besides his philosophical works, he's also more recently written about the left in France, particularly during 1968 and its aftermath. And one of the arguments he makes in a book that came out several years ago now is that we have to reclaim the words that we used to use to analyze mm-hmm. capitalism, socialism, mm-hmm. even that really bad word, communism. And I think for, for those of us who, who are interested in black liberation and studying black history and blacks, or black social scientists, we, we at least need to raise the possibility that some of the old terminology that came out of our movement is still relevant. That's uh, right.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: The second thought, though, and this is where a co-author and me sometimes, Megan, Megan Ming-Francis, sometimes we argue. <laughs> Which is why I think it's been a productive uh, partnership. <laughs> but one of the things we argue about sometimes, and I think it's a difficult question for all of us, what are the continuities and disruptions between black politics and its relationship to the racial state and, the, you know, and racial capitalism today, and how that differs from, let's say, during Jim Crow, during, during the black mm-hmm. power era, even during the tailing off of the aftermath of the, what some people call the post-civil rights era. And one, one of the critiques you have, we obviously uh, wrote an article where we saw that neoliberalism was a useful analytical tool for thinking about black politics. But you mm-hmm. have some questions that I think are, should be taken quite seriously about to what degree neoliberalism is a useful signifier for thinking through problems of black political economy and black politics.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, my, my view on this is, is somewhat of a minority view, insofar as people are very comfortable drawing the term neoliberalism into the discussion, sometimes as a noun, mostly as an adjective it tends to describe a lot or at least you know try to connote a lot without necessarily describing a whole lot and you know part of what i you know try to impress on people is you know again a, a very much a twofold kind of approach just as you've outlined michael which is on the one hand you know what's the term neoliberalism doing for mm-hmm. our current conversation who who is it bringing in who is it alienating right i mean there's a lot of work that happens at the meta level of conversation that that term can cause a fair amount of mischief. The other thing that I think is just much more critical for us to think about as analytic folks is, is it an accurate description of a discontinuity, of a breakage? From one moment to another, there's a there's a really important exchange that was written in the journal Interla- *International Labor and Working Class History*. You have Jefferson Cowie and Nick Salvatore, who wrote a piece called *The Long Exception*, and you have Nancy McLean and a number of others who you know respond to that piece. And McLean and the two other co-authors, uh, Salvatore and Cowie, have a pretty spirited exchange. I mean, I would encourage your listeners to take a look at it. But it it really got me thinking about. You know, I mean, let me just outline the argument. The argument that Salvatore and Cowie basically make is that what we consider to be the kind of golden age of New Deal liberalism is the and and you know what eventually became kind of Keynesian growth liberalism is really the long exception to uh, two gilded ages, right? You you have you have a gilded age in the 19th century, a gilded mm-hmm. age in the late 20th century, and this moment of robust social services, of very generous public spending. You know, emboldening workers to organize in unions, civil rights liberalism, all of this is really the exception that proves a much larger rule. Right? That's a point and that again, Piketty a, makes. So so the argument that, that Cowie and Salvatore put out there, which I think is pretty compelling, is that the era of you know mid-20th century liberalism that we tend to think about and associate with the right of people to really organize into unions by way of the Wagner Act, these kinds of protections, the expansion of you know public spending, the provisional you know services that come along with the prosperity of the post-war economy, and you know this period that really is birthed by the New Deal that helps to create this you know prosperity that's underwritten by the government, that in, in a way that's meant to basically you know provide equitable or at least closely. Um, equitable outcomes for people who are impoverished and those who are trying to enter the middle class, that all of that is an exceptional period that proves the much larger rule, which is that of Victorian inequality, that of Gilded Age inequality, right? That the late 19th century and the late 20th century really are much more in keeping with what people's day-to-day lives are like. And you can certainly see this, for instance, in terms of labor, right, the the arrival of the gig economy that we talk about now in the early 21st century, at that, that you know is how most people actually made their money in the 19th century as well, right? The idea of a, a nine-to-five workday, you work one job and you have robust benefits—that's not by any stretch of imagination the dominant way in which most Americans in, engage with the capitalist system. So when you think about you know this model, one of the things that becomes also quite clear is you inject in that the problem of race and what happened. In the context of these Gilded Ages, racially and at the level of racial politics, right? So, in the late 19th century, obviously, there's a moment that comes after Reconstruction where you see this dramatic reassertion of white power and the rewriting of state constitutions across the 11 states of the former Confederacy that really do make it almost impossible for Black people to secure the kinds of political power they had hoped to secure with the expansion of the franchise and so on, right, representation in the government and the like. And what instead you have is an effort to basically use the existing language of liberalism, the language of property and of contract, to secure their rights and their authority and their political futures. Obviously, Booker T. Washington has a kind of poster boy for this politic, but he's by no means it's sole architect or even most widely understood as being the only person who's thinking along these lines. Most African-Americans are believing that entrepreneurship is going to solve the problems that the evaporation of political power have basically brought to the fore. The, the historian Juliet Walker talks about this as the so-called golden age of black business, right? Now, when you think about the fact that liberalism, as an economic and political you know, system, or as the as a kind of political system undergirding capitalism, it requires the government defense of the contract relationship. And it presumes that people are entering the kind of public sphere as individuals who are simply trying to maximize the utility by way of the contract relationship. Now, what's so fascinating about this is the discussion about contract does not go away once you enter the New Deal. It does not go away in the post-war prosperity moment. It does not go away when you enter the civil rights period. And in fact, what you see is an effort on the part of many people of African descent, in particular relative to the racial question, but even you know people who consider themselves to be liberals in the 30s and 40s more broadly, trying to use the language and the relationship between capitalism and political power to expand the rights that are available to people. So understand, Michael, that Jim Crow segregation was a form of regulation on the market, right? That you yeah. actually had to force people and companies had to impose a white over black Order And and so much of what went into the opposition to Jim Crow in the case that the Louisiana Railroad raised in Plessy versus Ferguson was about not wanting the responsibility of having to basically adjudicate on the train platform who was black and who was white in a state like New Orleans, which was ranked with, you know, quote unquote (laughs) miscegenation. They didn't want that responsibility at all. And so they they worked with the Comité des Citoyens, right? That's my, not my, my bad French, the, the Citizens Committee, to come up with a way to try to oppose this regulation. And they failed. And they failed. Again, you come back around to 1917, the issues around overt racial zoning. You come back again, 1948, issues around restrictive covenants. These are housing issues, housing cases, going through the courts, right? These and others are all about whether or not the state has the right to impinge on the free accumulation, disposal, and transfer of private property. So just imagine this now, that civil rights reform, such as it exists in the progressive era, happens on the basis of property rights. The end of restrictive covenants occurs by way of a property rights argument. When kids in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1961, or in Miami, actually earlier in 1960, are asking to desegregate lunch counters, they're doing so obviously with the power of the dollar. So to presume and to make the argument that somehow there is an introduction of market logics into Black politics just doesn't make a lot of sense. right? Because there's always a through line in the, in the cause of African-American freedom struggles that is trying to find ways to use the market and the points of leverage that are available under a capitalist system to try to bring about some measure of Black uh, freedom, some measure of Black uh, emancipation. And, and this is really important, because I think what we tend to call now the moment that is, you know is so-called neoliberal and, and there are a number of things that people tend to point to, and, and they point to rightly, right, which is obviously the evisceration of those labor unions that were, you know, seemingly you know, embedded in the American political system through the 20th century, or the fact that people are paying taxes and not getting decent city services, or that, you know, the notion that entrepreneurship is going to give us somehow our kind of bedrock of citizenship, that people are consumers as opposed to citizens, right? All of those things are certainly different by degree, but they're not different in kind from an earlier kind of liberalism. And I think it's really, really important that we are much more specific about what kinds of forms and evolutions of late capitalism we're talking about. Certainly, globalization is not a new thing, um, you know, the, the the power of finance capital, as Peter Hudson tells us in his book about Haiti and the Citibank of New York, you know, the financial sector has long had undue influence over the workings of politics. And, and again, under colonial arrangements. So, so these are the kinds of things that I think require a lot more thoughtfulness um, and a lot more detail and discussion before we simply ask that a term like neoliberals simply, you know, do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. Again, I, I elect not to use the term personally because I have yet to really, you know, come up with a way to find the definitive break that people need to make the neo make sense. For me, it's, it's all just liberalism. It's all another extension of the contract relationships that were embedded in the Constitution that it's founding, certainly protected by way of the disenfranchisement movements of the late 19th century and running directly through the New Deal era, housing programs, employment policies, and obviously, in, in the late twentieth century as well.
0: There's a lot I agree with. I mean, one of the the two Gilded Age argument that you make is very similar to the what the argument that Thomas Piketty makes in in his book on Capital in the Twenty First Century. Um, that this that what we went through, what we called the Keynesian era, was really the exceptional period, and we're going back to traditional levels of inequality, the traditional structures of state relationships to the economy, et cetera, as you so eloquently described. And I also agree that, you know, this is not just an American phenomenon. This is a phenomenon right. we're seeing through, you know, globally as well. And I certainly, unfortunately, have to agree with you given the state of the academy, that race is missing from most of this discussion. Mm-hmm. But This is not just a problem with the neoliberal literature. By no means. It's a, <laughs> it's, no it's means. a problem with the financialization literature, which as I'm reading now, the, almost you know, the great majority of sort of left and Marxist takes on late modern capitalism tend to ignore race, for that, for that matter, gender as well, although some pay slightly more attention to gender than they do to race. I guess there's two things that I might push back on a bit, but one of them maybe not be a pushback. It might just be trying to sidestep what you're arguing. (laughs) 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 So one of the things that I'm becoming increasingly intrigued by, and where I think there is a break, I'm reading a a book, among others, called The Portfolio Society. Mm. And it makes a very strong argument that the role that certainly, I mean, you know, Hobson, and as you know, we can go back as far as we want to and, and know the power of, of, of financial capital. That's absolutely right. But there is something different about where what is the purpose of, of financial markets these days is very different than it was even before the mm-hmm. 1970s. That, the, that security itself, the, uh, the way that risk is thought about, the way that risk itself produces value, that financial markets are not primarily at this point about Producing the capital necessary for investors to build something to be to to be simple, simplified the argument for a second, I right. think there's there is probably a break we can talk about connected to financialization, and mm-hmm. I do agree with you that globalization has been around you know since the Medici, <laughs> in very right. important in very important ways, that I think we need to think through now. The problem is when I'm reading this literature, is that with some very small exceptions. Race is almost totally ignored. There are some, a few exceptions in this literature, but one of the points that is made that I do agree with is that, to a degree that has never been true in history, that in countries like the United States and much of Western rest in Europe, people's individual fortunes, including that of the working class, are tied to securities and yes. to, uh, to security markets, so that's a real break. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your pen, you, We don't have pensions. We have we have right. We have market Four funds. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so you know there are times when you know, given my you know left pedigree, where I would look to see how, how the stock market's doing because I want to know can I retire in ten years, <laughs> 10 yep. years or sure. not. And but sure. that's that's true for auto workers. That's true for you know, public sector workers. So that's a, that's one change we think about now. Whether that's now, what I think is a slippage that is not paid enough attention to is that some, pe- that some people, and I may have done this myself on occasion, conflate financialization with neoliberalism. With neoliberalism, right. Those right. have to be broken apart analytically. But what we also have to then think through, if there is a break that's associated with financialization, how does race play that out? How is risk being shifted to certain communities and not to other communities? And once again, there I've been finding some work by various historians quite useful on, on this front. Mm-hmm. The second mm-hmm. point I would push back on is that we can think about liber- about neoliberalism as a set of concrete policies, and that's, I think, a fairly useful way to think about it. Because then you can at least say, are these policies a break, and to what degree they're a break or not? But also, I'm and I'm certainly, this did not originate with me, have made arguments that neoliberal also has a set of ideological components to it as well. And I think that's where there may be a break, at least within black politics, in terms of the narrowing of the conception of of, of what is the political. In some ways it's going back to the the first Gilded Age in the sense of the politics of not just Booker T. Washington but even to to a significant degree of at least the early Du Bois in the sense that entrepreneurship is being considered to be more a fruitful enterprise than political mobilization, particularly mass political mobilization. Right. But the ideal that politics does not have a role at all is fairly new in black politics. And so the degree to which that is a break or not, I think, could deserve some attention. And obviously, I made that made the case or tried to make the case with Megan that that is a break that we should pay some attention to. And we uh, worth thinking about as a, as a categorical difference.
1: So, can, can I actually respond to that point? Because I think that, that second point is is really important to, to parse out a little bit, right? Because, right. you know, I, I certainly have seen, there, there, there are two things that I think are really important in in that argument, right? One is a sense of where we were and what black politics looked like in an earlier period. And the second is a sense of where we are now, or, or certainly, you know, post 1970s, 80s and 90s, right? Yep. And, you know, I, I want to begin with the, the second part first. I mean, we're, we are in a moment that has you know, clearly been awash in forms of Black politics, right? that has been you know, clearly looking to try to speak in terms that were you know, broadly understood to be about the problem of race and racism and, and white supremacy, police brutality, lingering inequality, and so forth, and is, is asking that the country actually make you know, anti-racism a consensus issue. I think that's that's really important. And, I, and and there are too many organizations and and moments to kind of name here, obviously, but you know, you think about police brutality, you know, um, politics, mass incarceration politics, obviously issues around anti-eviction politics. A lot of this stuff is very clear about the racial elements that are involved. Now, I will certainly agree with you that you know we have a whole host of, you know, very visible black faces and very identifiable, iconic, Black figures who are not interested in politics at all, and I would even argue further, have risen to prominence by virtue of overtly being seemingly apolitical. Absolutely. Right? You look at utterances by Will Smith. You look at utterances by people like Beyonce or Oprah Winfrey. A lot of that is, is really important insofar as it's Black people being apparently apolitical in public or using very typical kinds of cultural explanations for any number of, you know, reasons. Some people in Black they-
0: Studies departments,
1: too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um and so and so that so that so that's a very real thing but but i think there's also you know clearly you know a number of ways and this is where i think the mass incarceration literature is really helpful is that you know direct action and prison strikes and you know efforts to organize never stopped behind bars right from the from the era of george jackson to today right i mean that that's that's one of those lines that we can certainly draw there's there's not a neoliberalization of Black politics behind bars, number one. I think it's also true that people, when you think about, and you taught me this as a graduate student at U of C, is just thinking about the local aspect of Black politics, right, people have been running for city councils and city commissions, I mean, since the, you know, really the, ni- the late 1950s, early 60s, when it seemed like it was possible, even earlier, obviously with the 30s, um, even if they were doomed to candidacies, um, but you know, that, that has never really stopped right, the effort to try to make sure that there's some control over Black communities at the local level. Again, who's actually winning those campaigns, I think, is is a different question. But whether or not people are still believing in the ballot box, whether people are still believing in meat and potatoes issues, workplace issues, I, I think the literature on this is really clear around welfare rights, around reproductive rights. I mean, people are still actively engaged in politics. But this is not a moment of Gary, Indiana, 1970. I would, I would certainly concede that point. But I also would say, again, kind of borrowing from the long exception framework, that if you look at that period in the mid-20th century, that, that's an exception that proves the rule. right? And, and even more to the point that even during the heart of the direct action era, that there are pro-capitalist politics. That are absolutely determining what issues get brought to the fore, what kinds of stuff assumes national prominence. I mean, I think, for example, about you know Martin Luther King, you know, really trying to figure out how to do you know um, voting rights and housing rights and anti-war. And, and as you know, likely more better, you know, far better than I, you know, he's getting pushback at every single one of those turns. In some cases, from your uncle, right? Well, some um,
0: cases from within his own organization.
1: And, and exactly within his own organization, because. Because the 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 actual you know sense of what's possible is constantly shot through an entrepreneurial frame. Is shot through you know again mainstream Democratic Party politics, Republican Party politics in some cases. As Leia Wright points out, I think we have we have baked in that notion of the neoliberalization. Of you know, the 1970s period is a sense that somehow everybody was part of you know, the Communist Party that Robin Kelly writes about in the 1930s, right? I mean, we know that that's simply not the case. We also know that most people didn't support direct action campaigns in Southern cities, and they certainly didn't support them in Chicago during the housing struggles there in the mid 1960s. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is then what is the dominant form? The dominant form. Of black politics over the course of the 20th century. What are most people doing in their day-to-day? Are there moments of infra-political resistance happening? Absolutely, throughout the entire country's history. But there's also a very clear sense that as long as white folk are in charge of the workings of the state, that we have basically two options. We move into an entrepreneurial sector that's free, or at least more free, from direct white state influence, or we try to take over those political operations as best we can by way of having one or two Black representatives who, again, have to work their way through a whole host of cultural you know, assumptions that white people have about Black politics, or, by simply deciding that they are going to try to run, you know, third party options, again, more direct action options and the like, that are oftentimes, as you know, quite fleeting in terms of their political life cycle, right? Of trying to point people to is to say, yes, it's absolutely the case that we have, you know, thanks to you know Eyes on the Prize and a whole host of other really important on-the-ground scholarship, a kind of chronicling of a moment of direct action of people who, who you know took their licks to try to create. The black politics that we can now point to its emboldened by way of the vote and by way of participatory democracy. But it's also the case that in most of these moments, there's a much stronger, deeper, broader, and, and, and flexible pro-capitalist approach that is far easier to espouse because it's a response to white racism at the state level, and far easy to realize at an individual, even a small community level, because it doesn't require the same kinds of resources that running and funding a major political machine would require. And so I think it's really important, again, archivally, theoretically, to to interrogate that and and to have a much more kind of, I think, accurate sense of what the main tributaries of black politics are on a day-to-day basis an organizational basis.
0: And there's a disconnect. I think there's, I mean, there was a disconnect in the late 60s and a disconnect now. And the disconnect, I think, the, what are the aspirations of grassroots black people in terms of their political aspirations and their visions of a better society? And what type of politics are the ones that are dominant? Because I don't disagree with your characterization of the dominant forms of black politics then and mm-hmm. now. But in the 1960s, there was, I think it was a Harris Poll in around 68, 69, where the Black Panther Party was the third most supported civil rights, political black political organization in the country, and the one that most of the black people had the highest hope for going forward to the future. That didn't work out, as we all as we well know. Sure, but even a couple of years ago, there's been some major studies that show that the only population in the United States that supports socialism by a majority is black folks so right. <laughs> sure, sure, so sure, the, sure. so there's a disconnect, I think, and the, and I think part of what we do in both you know in both urban history, black history and you know, black political science, et cetera, is try to figure out what is the nature and causes of this disconnect between, on one hand, the aspiration of uh, grassroots African Americans, at least a substantial portion—certainly not a not 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 you know not overwhelming majority—but certainly a substantial portion, at almost any point, on mm-hmm. one hand, and the sort of very much more narrow uh, forms that Black politics is dominant in during most periods, even during periods of insurgency like the late teens and 1920s, or the. 1960s and early to middle 1970s as well, or even now. And part of what I think we're seeing now talk about, and I've been, as know you have as well, been meeting with some of the young activists, is a trying to figure out what some of us had to figure out when we were teenagers, which is how do we deal with these black leaders who are standing in our way, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> who are trying to mm-hmm. either channel us or shut us down or or to use your colonial metaphor, civilize us in ways that's detrimental to black politics and black people. Right. One of right. the sort of things that some of my colleagues and I joke about, but it's actually extraordinarily serious point, point, is that those of us who are trying to build theoretical models have to deal with, well, let me rephrase that. Those of right. us who are trying to honestly build theoretical models have to deal with history. And the historians have, you know, whether it's the long civil rights movement, the long exception, the numerous works in urban history that are deal with race in multiple ways and patriarchy and and, and um, heteronormativity that you point into some of your articles. Our theoretical models often run up against the historical archive. Right. But one of the things that struck me when you were writing, you were talking about a desegregated method a dis, to some degree, at des, this desegregated field now scientists at this table and neither of us would have any idea what a desegregated discipline looks like. Mm. <laughs> mm. And I would say that is true for the majority of the social sciences at least. So right. could you talk a little bit about and how historians approach have approached that over the last 20 or 30 years, how that has both the study of the type of phenomena whether it's Liberty City or Ferguson or the, those, right. the politics you've been describing for the last 45 minutes, on one end, how that's tied to how the discipline itself has
1: evolved. Right, right. No, it's a great question. So, so just going back to the point you had raised earlier about the Black Panther Party, I think, I think it's a great example, right? Because, you know, I think it's, it's certainly the case that one can come up with a kind of a set of ideas about the vibrancy of socialist, socialist thought in Afro-America by looking at the popularity of the Black Panther Party among, you know, broad swaths of the population. But when you bear down, as many historians have, you know, chapter by chapter with the party, you see that, you know, oftentimes what they're doing at the local level are different in spite of, you know, ideas that are supposed to be coming from the top about, you know, keeping a kind of uniform, you know, product, for lack of a better word, That never for the Panther happened party, the party, right? <laughs> the kinds of services that are being provided yeah. at the local level, I think, are really important to keep in mind. So when Alondra Nelson is writing about, you know, Black Panther health programs and, and the important work that that's doing, or Fred Hampton is registering voters in, you know, black Chicago to try to actually trouble the daily machine, right? It, it's very different than the kinds of Black Panther politics one seeing in the penthouse in Oakland, you know, by someone like Huey Newton, right? Um, and historians, I think, you know, have done a really good job, not just with the history of social movements, but even with the history of just, you know, cities and the country more broadly, you know, by making sure they, make, they maintain a commitment to doing case studies and you you just can't get away just as a as a form of of evolve, evolving thinking and arguing and academic and analytic discourse, you have to always go back to doing original research at the case study level. I'm, I'm a big believer of that. And one of the things that has made urban history such a vibrant field, really, and even political history and cultural history, such a vibrant field, is that many people who wander into other fields in the history d- discipline, but also who wander into other disciplines more broadly, tend to cut their teeth on case studies right so so again i'm thinking about my own kind of intellectual biography right i didn't come at you know my my sense of you know liberalism in, in the long kind of deray from you know picking up and trying to wade through the theoretical literature on neoliberalism right i mean what i what i did was actually go to a site and embed myself for 3 years in learning the dynamics of jim crow politics in a city like miami that's already got kind of global aspirations, that have long had global aspirations and global pressures. And, you know, again, thinking about these dynamics in very kind of close and particular ways, going into the archives by black business people, by black black capitalists and white capitalists, and seeing what they kind of arrived at. And and part of what, you know, I want to, you know, try to impart is when I talk about a desegregated method, part of it is absolutely about understanding that so many of these local calculations are happening in a desegregated manner. Right. I mean, it it blew me away, Michael, to learn about the deep, deep investment that white business people had, not just in black communities, but in black politics. Over the mm-hmm. course of the 20th century, right? We we tend to think that you know African American politics, if it's not engaging you know the New Deal state, or if it's not engaging you know the kind of racist sheriff, that it's operating in these like very small space. Or if it's not engaging, obviously the white leftists who are helping to you know radicalize you know black people in some kind of way by introducing them to Marx or so on. And again, that's that's a straw man. Obviously, the, a lot of work has debunked that. But the point is that there are these sites or episodes in American history that we easily point to as moments of interracialism, right? The whites who were showing up during the freedom marches in Selma and so forth. But, but what is actually the case is that the pageant of American capitalism, racism, and politics are integrated from the outset, and that you have to really understand, for instance, why is it? That people believe, for instance, that the market is the best arbiter of goods and services. When did that become the case? You know, for my money, it looks quite clear that the minute you see the state start to desegregate and allow black people to start accessing mid 20th century goods and services, that we stop believing in the state as an effective (laughs) arbiter of the public good, right? <laughs> and and that and that evolution, right? Our, our our so-called neoliberal moment, with all of its antipathy toward workers, with all of its antipathy toward quote-unquote big government, with its belief in the mutual fund as the kind of like source of prosperity, or even the mortgage-backed security, which was then bundled sold on these, you know, kind of light speed markets on Wall Street in and, and London and elsewhere, all of that is embedded in the politics of place, right? You don't get mortgage-backed securities without the redlining story, without the kinds of interracial negotiations at the local level that the FHA was doing to open up Black communities, without debates about public housing, right? And even now, as we think about, you know, the, the long-term consequences of the subprime crisis, so much of those issues were about white banks going into Black neighborhoods, brokering with Black ministers. And broken with black, you know, wealth creation gurus and telling them, black people, you need to refinance your mortgages so you can ba- basically have the nest egg that the wage economy is not going to provide you with. <laughs> exactly. right? That this is all part of the broader people. We we know for a fact that most subprime mortgages were refinances. They were not new mortgages, right? Yep. And that has everything to do with the longer history of race in place that we oftentimes elect not to focus on. So, so when I talk about a desegregated method, it's those lessons that I learned from doing the field work and the archival work in these places like South Florida, certainly now in, in Baltimore, looking at even, you know, in, in the case of the new research I'm doing in Britain in the 19 teens and 20s, very similar kinds of negotiations and dynamics, man, that are that are facilitating the workings of empire, right? I mean, this is all part of of a of a bigger story that I think, again, methodologically, analytically, theoretically, empirically, that we have to be willing to kind of grapple with and and, and in some ways just to challenge. The, the, the theoretical hardwiring that we may want to bring to this if we decide not to really maintain a certain, you know, loyalty or commitment to a case studies approach. I, I can't endorse case studies enough, brother, because it is really a site of important, you know, theoretical raw material, frankly.
0: Absolutely. One of the the aspects of thinking about racial capitalism that, that was glaring, I think, in your uh, items piece was the what was going on on the ground in Liberty City and Ferguson and how the, the, yeah. the, the extraction was part of global land grab to use your phrasing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the things that I think, and this is where I think the combination of the case studies and one of the things that, that we've lost our analytical edge from the previous generation as we opened the conversation is we have to go back to serious political economy. Yeah. So one of the things that happened once the exceptional period began to end, as you put it, is that workers, people of color, black folks no longer have the money to buy the commodities necessary to keep capitalism going. Mm-hmm. And here's where the break comes. Right. So what do we do? We're going to lend people money. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so yeah. the levels of debt that we saw over the last, since the 1970s, both at the corporate and personal level are unprecedented. Sure. And that's, has this natural outcome in the subprime market, and that's of course racialized. As we know, that yes. at Wells Fargo, people were given bonuses of up to a million dollars to sell black folks and, and brown folks. They didn't need and be that they were qualified for better rates.
1: That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, we, have Absolutely. Lot, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I certainly, you know, a, am a believer that we should think through the availability of credit, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and the double-edged problem that is the availability of credit and, and how that is meant, again, to try and make up the ground that's lost relative to depressed wages, right? I mean, that's obviously huge. That's a huge that's a huge issue, you know, but, you know, it's also, I think, important to keep in mind, though, again, you know, that the, the problem that black folk have had with credit go back to the sharecropping situation. Absolutely. Right. It's, I mean, that this is not again, that's why I say differences of degree rather than kind. I mean, I'm, I'm all for appreciating, again, as an urban historian and just as a thinking person, I mean, I'm all for appreciating differences in scale. Right. I mean I think I think you have to appreciate differences in scale and you certainly ne- need to need to appreciate the fact that you know capital gets better and better and better at state capture as you move Absolutely. from one epoch to the next. Yep. also really important when you, when you start to veer into discussions about people's values changing that's that's when I have a, a real I don't have to pull pump the brakes right because I, <laughs> I think you know there, there's a really important you know story to be told about why people continued, to place faith in capitalism, you know, across the, the the long sweep of you know 18th, 19th, 20th century, that that capitalism, you know, has a certain kind of promise attached to it, and and, and it certainly you know represents a far less threatening you know, political tradition than the socialist or the communist tradition re- represents, you know, as well. And so there are all kinds of reasons that from a, just a, a negotiating standpoint at the local level, again, you're, you're not going to get your school bill, brother, in, you know, the Deep South, if you're going in as, as a communist trying to get something from the local, you know, county commission. Right? Or that as a happen.
0: black nationalist, as some tried.
1: Exactly. 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 So, so disappreciating the real polit- the, the real politic of this, right? It's, I think is also you know really worth worth keeping in mind. You know, one one of the examples that I love to point to about this is actually about Du Bois himself. And and you know, I, I had a passing reference to this in a world more concrete, and I'm writing about this in, in much more detail in Black Capitalism. It, you know, in 1935. W.E.B. Du Bois is at the top of his game as somebody who can theorize and think through racial capitalism, right? I mean, he's already, you know, basically putting the finishing touches on Black Reconstruction. He's popularizing ideas about Marxism, you know, trying to basically convert the talented 10th. It's at this point that people like Abram Harris are, you know, s- squarely in Du Bois's shadow as somebody who is teaching them about political economy. He's, he has a, a whole operation in place to try to teach and broadly the counter-revolution of property, try to talk about the problems of race and political economy. You could certainly argue that nobody in the country's history understood more the workings of racism and capitalism together than W.E.B. Du Bois, right? I mean, that that that's just, you know, a fact. And it's at this exact time, 1935, where Du Bois writes in his own autobiography about being a slum landlord in Harlem. Yep. You can go look it up it's yeah. right there right and, and and he is basically making the argument that I'm somebody at this point he's in his you know, late 60s I'm somebody who enjoyed expensive brandies and nice suits I like the comfortable life and I just never put enough money away and my mother's getting old and I have to find a way to put this nest egg together right and he gets in a he gets a, a series of apartments in Harlem in, in the heart of the slum district and he basically claims that he can't really understand all of the details of the Byzantine New York City tax code, because it's that complicated and ridiculous, which again, this is Du Bois we're talking about. And he has no choice because he can't be there to keep an eye on the property day to day, given his travel. He has no choice but to let the house fall into, quote, a house of ill repute unquote, right? So you have Du Bois, who's literally harvesting his livelihood, his kind of discretionary income from slum property that may be operating as a brothel, as a numbers house, as certainly, you know, a part where the bottom Black 90% is, you know, making their day-to-day existence. And he is having to do it because, frankly, he can't think his way out of the problem, the systemic problem of capitalism, right? And I think it's, it's, it's really a signal example of how little Ideology actually matters when it comes to the day-to-day engagements with the market and its problems. Right? Is that you know no no one is going to be better schooled at this than Du Bois, and yet even he can't escape the grinding workings of the system. And I think we th- that lesson to me above many others. Seems to remind us that we have to be much more attentive to the fact that, regardless of what people may believe ideologically, regardless of what they may want to do aspirationally with their politics, that there's a reality, brother, where like you have to make your money, and that's going to put skin in the game for you in ways that you can't even possibly prevent. And I think it's just, you know, again, thinking about the the, the way that the system forces us to do that is part of the work that I want to do and continue have done going on from this point forward.
0: And that's one of the reasons that I try to pay some attention to some of the service programs of the Black Panthers because one of the things I think people sometimes and some authors miss is that the reason Hampton was doing it was organizing people to vote in Chicago or people in Oakland were organizing f- breakfast for children or the health clinics was one to provide services that the state wasn't providing that was supposed to be that the state was supposed to be.
1: That's to right. Provide. Survival programs pending revolution. Uh, right.
0: right. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that actually has a long tradition in revolutionary right. movements across several different continents. But the other part of it was actually more radical and more interesting was let's play by their rules and see what happens. people to the necessity for revolution, because uh, if we can't do things that, you know, why are they attacking people who are providing my children breakfast every morning? Why are they right. trying to shut down a health clinic that has a better record of getting people off of drugs than the state-sponsored health clinics do? So, well, you know, it's, it's a, to use a, a euphemism, it's a, it's a long way to go. It's a <laughs> Absolutely. Long march. Yeah. Semi-pessimistic note. Let's bring this to a <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> Thanks much, and uh, we'll have to do this again.
1: Oh, love to, Michael. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com. That is RacingCapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.